Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Brain and Body Things. Our special guest today is Dr. Roger Lowe. I completed residency with Roger at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, affiliated with Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Today, we're going to take you behind the scenes on becoming a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor and diving a little bit more into what Roger does. He completed a fellowship in sports and spine at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. He's currently an assistant professor and associate residency program director in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. He specializes in non-operative management of musculoskeletal and sports injuries affecting the spine, peripheral joints, muscles, and tendons. We're going to talk about his patients and how he empowers them and educates them. We also talk about the current state of healthcare delivery and different ways that we can combat burnout and how Roger approaches this with his trainees. I hope you enjoy. So hi, Roger. I'm so excited to have you on this podcast. I just did a little intro about you, but in your own words, can you tell us about yourself? Maybe a little bit about how you grew up, which I found very interesting when I learned that about you and where you are now. Sure. I mean, I grew up in New York City. Uh, in Chinatown in Lower Manhattan, uh, and I was born and raised there, went to school locally, and then, you know, when I was in middle school, I ended up getting a scholarship to this all-boys school, this prep school collegiate up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and uh, so I went there, and then from there, I went to Williams College in Massachusetts. Uh, It's a very small rural place, but it's a great, you know, place and gave me a great education. I was pre-med there, and then from there, I took a couple years off, found myself at Stony Brook Medical School in Long Island, New York. Um, fun fact, I met, my, I met my wife, Gabby, uh, in college. And so we've been together for a long time, but I didn't really propose until match day <laughs> of, uh, of medical school, uh, which you know, I, I wanted to pick a very meaningful day to do that. So that's a fun fact about that. And then from there, I, you know, I just went on to New Jersey. I trained with you uh, at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, affiliated with Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Physiatry or Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, or PM&R. Uh, we go by many different names. Um, and following residency, I decided to specialize in interventional spine and sports medicine. It's a hybrid fellowship that allows me to see, you know, learn and see uh, sports medicine patients, uh, and also uh, do some more interventional procedures for for uh, for spine and peripheral joints and you know painful disorders of those areas of the body. So, you know, following fellowship. I found myself back at our program where I'm an assistant professor of PM&R and also an associate program director. Want to back up to one thing, just in case people don't know what match day is. Mm. The craziest day, probably. There's no other job that works like that, right? Where (laughs) basically, for those who don't know, we interview at multiple different places for a job. And all those jobs are basically interviewing us at the same time then both the employer and the employee create lists of top choices. And then that's matched into a system. And then one day you just open an envelope, literally. Yep. Like in Harry Potter or something. (laughs) Experience. Yeah. And it's actually even more stressful than you think, because, you know, the, the Monday of match week, you, you, you find out whether or not if you've matched, but then you don't know where at all until the Friday of. And so, and, 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 you submit your rank list weeks in advance. So after you've certified everything and, you know, all the programs submit their rank list of who they want and you submit, you know, your rank list, 
you have to wait for weeks before <laughs> you actually find out. So, you know, uh, it's funny because I think Dr. Glaucom Flecken, you know, uh, you know, he 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 did a little piece on that, and it's totally true. I mean, why is there a gap? Who knows? It's just an algorithm. Technically right. speaking, he's, it's, he's it's seven it. seconds after. You know, he's on TikTok, right? And he has really TikTok, funny bits. Yeah. Um, I think he posts them on Instagram as well about just the different specialties, and he's really nice to PM and R, which he is, is great. He is. <laughs> yeah. And everything he says is true to, to, to a certain extent too. So, so I think a huge part of this podcast is talking about our our field PM and R, and I I wanted to bring you on here because I think you do a great job of exemplifying what we do, and you you also take that a step further by not only being a great physiatrist, but also being a great teacher. So we serve a lot of underserved people. So let's talk about your patients first and kind of what drew you to this field and these this patient population that we work with. Uh, well, I mean, I actually chose physiatry or PM&R uh, in part because, you know, working with patients with disabilities, um, you know, they are underrepresented as a, as a huge cohort to begin with. But um, I think what you're referring to in particular is serving underserved populations in terms of the people who I see at University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey. When it comes to that, you know, I, I in part chose our training program because of the diversity of patients. I thought that it was, it was something that I was interested in. I wanted to see more in terms of pathology, but also, I, you know, there's something very valuable in being able to provide care for people who otherwise, you know, would not receive great care. And to, and to sort of utilize everything I, I've been taught to provide, you know, world-class care, hopefully, um, to these individuals. So just a little bit of background about our patients at university. A lot of them, you know, they, they deal with a lot of different barriers to healthcare, a lot of different socioeconomic barriers. So they really don't get uh, the typical types of ideal treatment for a lot of musculoskeletal disorders that, that other people may, may be privy to. So I wanted to go back to this setting um, and use my training to maybe, you know, lead to some better outcomes than what we have been seeing so far. So when you when you say just another background for people, when we say musculoskeletal disorders, we're talking about muscles, tendons, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. We work a lot with people who don't need surgery or maybe have had surgery, but are still having problems doing what they want to do. And this population that you're talking about, they don't, they don't necessarily go to the Globo gym, right? Like these aren't the people that have memberships at Equinox or the boutique fitness studio down the street, or, you know, all these great fitness things that I I know you and I are involved in. Like we can talk a little bit more later about what kind of activity you do, but exercise is so important for people with musculoskeletal problems. So how do you how do you talk to your patients about that and what they can do? I mean, a lot of my patients, they are too busy with, you know, one or more jobs uh, to really participate consistently in exercise. And, you know, it may be, it may be simple to say, well, get up earlier, stay up later, but for, you know, a single mother of three with like two or three different jobs, you know, overnight and whatever, there's just certain things that take more priority, honestly, uh, most of the time when it comes to, also like baseline health literacy and an understanding of their condition. A lot of my patients, they come in and they've already been told that they're quote unquote bone on bone with their knee arthritis or something like that. And they are, they live in fear 
of movement um, uh, and, and they don't have a grasp of, of the context with which you know, we sort of communicate between ourselves as healthcare providers. So what I mean by that is this, they, they, they've had the x-rays and the imaging and the reports say a whole bunch of stuff and they read these large words and they're like, oh my God, you know, there's something wrong with me. And physicians and other, other healthcare providers, we do a pretty terrible job at contextualizing findings within their symptoms even, and we don't educate them enough. So that's what I see almost every day, that my patients do not have a baseline understanding of their diagnosis. And also a lot of times they haven't exhausted conservative care. Uh, and on the preventive end, they don't participate in a home exercise program because they don't understand how important it is. So I think understanding and education is, is that missing link that, that really makes a difference between going down this relatively steep path of injections, possibly surgery, and really changing your life and, and being able to function well with minimal pain, despite any findings you may have on imaging. And I know this from the stories that we've talked about before, but I know you are not afraid to have those frank conversations with people beyond education to empower them. I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that, how you, how do you get someone to do their exercises at home or find the time with all of these other responsibilities that your patients have? Right, right. I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty busy myself. And so a lot of the excuses that, that I hear, I myself, have, <laughs> I myself tell myself the same excuses every day. And so, you know, the first thing is I tell patients everything's cumulative, right? You don't have to give me an hour and a half every single day, but you give me something every day, whether it's five minutes. So, you know, you have to do things with, with a modicum of consistency before it becomes a habit. And then once you start to see the outcomes of it and you start to improve a little bit, then you have that little extra boost of motivation, of buy-in, and, and it becomes easier with time. So a lot of patients, they respond well to you saying, do something every day. It doesn't have to be five hours. It could be five minutes. You know, things add up. And, and so many of my patients, they break their home exercise program down to morning and evening and that sort of thing. And so I think doing that, it takes away some of that stress and expectation that one may have to deal with when it's trying to make a huge change in their lives. When it comes to things like weight loss, you know, sleep, we talk about sleep hygiene sometimes. When it comes to weight loss, I tend to tell my patients not to worry about the absolute number. And in fact, when it comes to following up with them in, in clinic, I don't tell them to focus on any number. I mean, I, I tell them as long as you come to me, you could be 5% better or 85% better. That matters less than you being somewhat better, mm -hmm. you know, because, because that will, will tell me and you that some progress was made. And so for those people who have been in pain for 10, 15 years to see a 5% difference in six weeks, it's pretty considerable. So you focus on their function and I'm going to use a different word than function, but also life experience right? Like, are you happier every day? Can you do more every day? Can you, right. Uh, and, and it sounds like it can look different for everyone, right? Like exercise doesn't have to look, it doesn't have to be in a certain package. It can look different based on everyone's life. That's correct. I mean, I tell some of my patients, you know, if you like to dance, put on some music. And in fact, one of the things I tell them is make sure you're doing this home exercise program with like, a, you know, a TV show in the background, some music, something to get you through what appears to be monotonous, mm -hmm. right? Um, and for those patients who already, 
you know, quite active, I, I, I don't have to tell them anything, but, but I'm, I'm specifically talking about people who, for whom regular exercise is foreign and sort of scary, and they don't know where to start. So, so those, those are you know, quite a few of my patients who I work with. Did you realize that you would become a coach as a doctor, your patients? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that feeling happened pretty early on when it came to patients. So when I was a medical student, I was one of those medical students who liked every rotation. I tried to see myself in, in every field and, and I clearly went to medicine for the, for the clinical care. Third and fourth years of medical school were way better then first and second year where it's all like the classroom stuff. And so, yeah, like when I was a medical student, you know, even then I realized that I really enjoyed breaking things down for my patients, meeting them at their level of understanding and education and talking to them to the point where, where, where undergoing the treatment, it could be a new medication or, or something like that was almost their idea because, and oftentimes if you give people the tools and understanding, they make that choice and they make the right choice for themselves without you having to really push them too hard. I completely agree with that. And some of it is carving out that time to have those conversations. And this is kind of, I think, lending itself to the next topic that we previously discussed talking about, which was just the healthcare system in general and looking at reasons why we don't have enough time sometimes, or not only we, anybody, you know, I think everyone in medicine, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or someone cleaning the hospital, everybody wants to help people in some way and to do it right. You do need that time. And especially at least with what we do, that time seems to be constantly chipped away at, right? Because we got all these things we have to do. It does contribute to burnout, which we'll talk about in a second. But what do you tell yourself when you're going into a patient room, I guess, at that level? How do you motivate yourself to give it that time? Kind of hit the nail on the head there. You know, there's never enough time. Uh, and, And what I've realized is there's only so much you can accomplish for a given patient and a given visit. So I tell my trainees this, every patient gets like a battery, right? Like, like sort of like a mental battery from me where I can only give you so much time or energy, right? So, so if they're a very complex patient where the first visit or second visit or 10th visit is, is sort of emotionally draining for both of us and they have a lot of things to sift through and, and it's very, you know, and it's not really as much to, for me to do, and, and it just takes a lot of time, I, I will often save it for the next visit. You know, mm-hmm. whereas some other folks, you know, they, they come to you and they, they, and they want to do PT or do whatever, and they're much more receptive. And for those people, we spend that time, you know, we, we, we watch them squat, we watch them move, and, and we try to like parse out for them where they can move better and where they can enter with their current level of function and pain into some good, you know, home exercise program or, or, or PT. One of my mentors, Dr. John Kirshner, he kept on telling me as a fellow that everyone, you know, you have to worry about or think about the trans theoretical model of behavioral change. And so all the phases of that, you know, the pre-contemplation, the contemplation, preparation. And I, I think that one of the tricks that I use is just having a conversation and just mentioning things. So I have one patient where we, you know, she was kind of sensitive about her weight. And I said, and, and for the first two or three visits, I, I just mentioned 
weight loss as just part of a list of options that I was making available to her for to consider. And I couched it within, you know, the context of, oh yeah, we can take medications, you know, maybe can try injections or weight loss. These, all these things help, you know, not one guaranteed to help more than others, you know, but you do have lots of options. And then, you know, as, as time went on, I, one day I would bring up, you know, so, so, you know, how, how's your diet, you know, and, and she seemed very receptive to it at that point, but it took like six to eight months. And so I think for every different patient, you know, my approach is, is just sort of reading the room a little bit, figuring out where they are on that model and reacting accordingly. I remember Dr. Ben Levy, the esteemed pain physician that works at the Veterans Affairs in New Jersey. He, we work with him as residents and he once said to a patient, there's always something I can do for your pain. It was, you know, it was as the patient was leaving, leaving, walking out the door. And he said, just as a reminder, there's, there's always something I can do for your pain. And I, that really stuck with me. We are definitely always trying different things, like you said, and, and, and trying to just get people better. Yeah. I think that really is our field. It defines our field. And I think it distinguishes us from every other specialty. The fact that there's always something a physiatrist can do, you know, whether it's pain or something else, a lot of times we come in, right in the continuum of, of healthcare from, from hospital state afterwards, we come in at the very last stage when, when, when all the surgeries have been done, when all the you know, medicine and the ICU stays have, been, have ended. And, and sometimes I feel like we're the uh, so-called, you know, so what, now what specialty, but it's one of the most intriguing parts of our field for sure. I think so. And we will always try, right? We'll always Absolutely. be on the patient's team and mm-hmm. work with them to where they need to be. I'll pivot to now as teacher. So you, you're a coach to your patients. You're also a coach to your, to your trainees and your students. So you work at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School slash Kessler Institute. For <laughs> I know it's a huge <laughs> mouthful, honestly. Such know. a mouthful, but that's where we did our training and you've gone back and are doing such great work with the residents. Just a little bit on burnout from kind of a systems perspective and, and what's perhaps contributing. It's just one of the things contributing to all the different challenges we have in healthcare. But one of the focuses often is individual wellness. How, how do you empower your, your trainees who are working hours and hours and hours every single week mm-hmm. have personal lives and families? And how do you talk to them about focusing on their own health and wellness? I think a lot of the residents I've worked with, they, they, have, they already have a strong sense of, of, of wellness. And they, you know, I think that they, they appreciate that already. But being, being a teacher and also you know, like, a, like an attending or whatever, um, you, you sort of see them. Period, not attending. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, but being, but sir, in that role, I, I do sort of, uh, I've seen that going through residency, you, you want to do two things, two major things, right? Like you want to learn the medicine, but you also want guidance and you want mentorship and you want to both figure out who you are and what you want to do within a field and also how to do it from a trusted source. And so I think part of every rotation, I do try to have that conversation. So I, I get to know him as a person, 
you know, figure out what, what their hobbies are and, and what they like to do. But I also try to figure out, you know, in terms of clinically where they are. So, so in terms of being a teacher, everyone's different. So I try to vary my approach and, you know, teaching style based on the person who I'm speaking to. Everyone responds to something different. But in general, there are certain things that I think a lot of people respond well to, which is pretty much, obviously, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to be funny, if you're nice, that, that goes a long way, mm-hmm. you know, so being a nice person helps. Mm-hmm. But also, I think being someone where they can feel safe being stupid around and asking stupid questions. Mm, okay. So that's a big thing, you know. So in medicine, this is something that, that, that's a huge issue. You know, going through training in any field of medicine, as a resident, you don't want to appear stupid mm. and so that's going to prevent you from asking stupid sounding questions in your head so i think a lot of us deal with imposter syndrome um i know i do so i think that i try to mitigate that by just sort of telling the trainees listen when i was a resident and you're at your level this is what i thought or or if i ever made a mistake like that before or or or, or an error in, in in reasoning or whatever i would openly share that and i still do I do think that's important because it, 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 it makes it very obvious that, that we're all works in progress and it makes it okay to not know everything every second. And once that is done, I think people are much more open in asking me, you know, whatever questions and, and eventually, hopefully that will lead to a stronger resident, a more knowledgeable position. What I really love about your answer to that question is that you didn't say, well, I think they need to focus on breathing exercises or, or working or finding time to work out more or, and, and I'm not, I mean, I love those things. I think those things are very important to a healthy life, not only as a trainee or a doctor or whatever stage you are along the way, but as a patient, I, I think those are things that we both, I know, talk to our patients about, but what you're talking about is a work environment, like creating a happy and safe place to, to grow as a doctor, which I think personally, my opinion is that should be a huge focus. Right. And it's something that we, you know, in, in academic medicine, you know, we could directly control this, right? I mean, we're, we work with our trainees on a daily basis. That is the part of their wellness, the professional wellness that, that you can directly implement. Things like you know, it, the situation hasn't really come up for me, honestly, in the last three years uh, where, you know, a resident is completely burned out and, and, and I'm providing suggestions as to what they can do to, to mitigate that burnout. With COVID, of course, from from programmatic perspective, yes, like things were really uh, difficult at times and still difficult in some ways. But but we tackled that as a team, as a leadership team, myself, you know, the program director, Dr. Brooks and Dr. Kirschblum, the chairman. So, so, but in terms of individuals, I think I try to focus on what I can do on my end. And, and that is just to have some fun, see some patients, you know, take all the things that I've learned in, in my short career so far and, and, and make it so that the residents can maybe pick up on some of these pearls sooner and a little bit more gracefully. Um, <laughs> I, you were very graceful in residency. <laughs> I mean, it appeared to be, but that, was, that took a lot of uh, smiling and, and looking the other way, <laughs> you know. And we've talked about this before. It's not to diminish those, those other things that you do in your personal time. I'm glad that you use the word professional wellness 
right? And, and distinguishing that from personal wellness. I am gonna give you my last question because I think this transitions nicely. And this will be similar to the last question I asked to, to everybody. And that is how do you take care of your brain and body health? So what is your personal wellness journey? My personal wellness, uh, you know, physically, I, I do like strength training. Um, so, you know, I have like a setup in my garage and, you know, have some equipment there and I try to go there a few times a week. Um, some weeks, you know, more than that, some weeks less in terms of, you know, my, my, my emotional and mental well-being is something that I chip away at, whether consciously or unconsciously throughout the day, every day, honestly, you know, ever since you invited me on this podcast, I kind of took some time to reflect on what I do. And I, I think I do more than I thought I did a week ago, right? I mean, so I realized that as I'm driving to work every day, I'm coming back, I tend to practice some gratitude. I, you know, I think about my family. I think about like a particular injection that a resident did really great on that day. And, and it was huge. I mean, seeing your students excel and learn things. I mean, that is probably the best part of my day, you mm. know? At work, at least at home, it's like, you know, with me and my daughter and stuff. And so I practice gratitude uh, tr fairly constantly. And, you know, and I, I also, uh, you know, I'm always on Instagram <laughs> as, as much as I hate to admit it, you know, you know, sort of like searching for humorous content. I'll leave it at that. Um, so that's my emotional, you know, I don't journal or anything, but I do, I do that. I will admit that, you know, I, I have, you know how we have iCloud photos. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole album that I have in my phone. It's called Motivation. And so anytime I think of, you know, I come across like a, like a quote or something or, or video or TikTok or something that, that I think, oh, this is pretty motivating and inspiring. I save it there. And sometimes, you, you know, you kind of go to it and you're like, oh, okay, good. You know, because um, mm -hmm. we've all had some really long days, you yeah. know, and, and all of us have some pretty bad days. I think it's important to, at, at those moments, to really go back in time and both take a look at some of the things that you've done and accomplished in life, but also draw inspiration from, from some other sources too. A lot of people go through similar struggles. So if you're able to learn from someone else's struggle and, and triumph, it's, it's a good way to make use of, of available uh, material. Well, I'm motivated after mm -hmm. talking with you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I need. I just need to call Roger in my phone when I need to pick me up. I so appreciate you coming on this podcast. Of course. And I think <laughs> your gratitude time is probably a lot shorter now that your commute is in an hour from New York City. No, exactly. No, it's, it's funny because during residency, it, there was no gratitude being practiced at all. <laughs> and and it was road rage and a lot of angry music. And because uh, I lived in New York. For those of you who don't know, I, I lived in New York City uh, for residency, but I commuted to New Jersey every single day. And it was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Roger. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Bye. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast about all things brain and body. Please rate, subscribe, and review on whatever platform you prefer to tune into your podcast. Also, feel free to share this podcast on any platform. This podcast is for general information and educational purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is meant to better help you understand your health, but does not serve as a replacement for medical services or care. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content of this podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine, including the giving of medical advice. Q 
curious about more brain and body things, find me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Dr. Natasha Mehta and let me know what you'd like to hear about.